Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. We were fortunate at the centre to recently host Sir Richard Feacham to discuss malaria eradication in the Asia-Pacific. After his event, Professor Gabrielle Bammer of the ANU National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health sat down with Sir Richard to discuss the roles of the private sector, policymakers and researchers in the global malaria effort. You can read a summary of their discussion on our blog at devpolicy.org. So the malaria story is really a good news story. And I wonder if you could tell us some of the backstory to it, particularly how research has been influential in making those changes happen. Well, I think the the research dimension of the malaria story is an interesting mixture of good news and less good news. So the good news is what you would predict, that the malaria research community is quite large and very active. And since Bill and Melinda Gates became seriously committed to malaria around the year 2000, the funding available for malaria research has increased dramatically. So it's now Bill and Melinda Gates, the NIH in Washington, the Wellcome Trust, the UK Medical Research Council, the Australian government. There are many sources of malaria research funding and the malaria research community has made good use of those sources and expanded the enterprise a lot, varying from fundamental biology and genetics of the malaria parasite and of the malaria vector, the Anopheles mosquito, right through to more applied areas of vaccine development and drug development, for example, and now new insecticide development. So where we are in malaria today is, um, in part at least, the result of those research efforts and the fact that we have uh, great drugs. Next year we'll have a vaccine for the first time and then we'll have better vaccines. And in a number of other areas we have the products of research to help us do the job. I think the interesting other side of the coin, which is not so positive, but I think we are learning about it right now, is that if the global malaria policy setting is done by researchers, we'll get the wrong answer. So the research community needs to be strongly part of a global disease enterprise. It needs to be feeding in great ideas, great insights, products, analyses to that global effort, but it should not be in charge. Because when researchers are in charge, what you get is a long list of the things we don't know, a long list of the research priorities, and a major statement that we need to be given more money to answer those unresolved questions, which is not a criticism. I've been a researcher for a big chunk of my life. It's what researchers do. Um, But the whole global effort needs to be led by policymakers, strategists, people from the financing institutions, and people who are focused on what we do know and what we can do with existing knowledge and existing technology, and aggressively pursuing that, while the research community come in with constant new insights and new products and the better drug and the better epidemiological mapping and surveillance system, for example, to support what the implementers are doing and the policymakers are doing. And I think we're closer now to getting that right. So researchers, strongly part of the family, strongly part of the team, yes. Researchers in charge, no. So as Winston Churchill said, on tap but not on top, right? Researchers, Um, I I like that. Researchers on tap but not on top. I like that. um, 
So can you say a little bit more about the public health contribution, particularly the kind of health systems contribution to the to where we are with malaria? You've said a lot about the medical contribution, yes. vaccines and drugs. Yes. So the research story with malaria um, does sort of fall into the two components, things that happen in laboratories and things that don't happen in laboratories. Things that happen in laboratories and then in large field trials are focused around drugs, vaccines, basic immunology and genetics, um, uh, better insecticides and better understanding of the mosquito, etc. But outside the lab, there are very important avenues for research. For example, um, spatial analysis, digital mapping, um, use of all the new technology to actually map cases, to map households, to map who's got a bed net and who doesn't have a bed net, etc. That's one important area. Um, epidemiology and the greater sophistication in simply um, measuring malaria, measuring its spatial properties and its clustering and tracking that in real time on an ongoing basis. And things like cell phones and GPS have contributed a lot to that. And then on the health system side, uh, research that has helped contribute to the, well, who is going to deliver these services against malaria kind of question. Um, is it going to be the public healthcare infrastructure, the clinics and hospitals run by the government? Yes, it will be that. But what about the large private healthcare infrastructure that exists in most, but not all, of the malaria endemic countries. And that's a good example of a research frontier. We're just waking up to the fact that in many countries, most children with malaria aren't taken by their mothers to a public facility at all. They're taken to a private facility. And that private facility is unregulated, off the map for the government. They don't even know who the doctor is or have its address. And that private provider does not report, he, he or she, the private provider, may misdiagnose, may mistreat, may charge too much, and doesn't report the case to the government surveillance system. So one of the big frontiers is bringing the private providers into the malaria enterprise. And in some countries where most provision is private, like India, where 80% of provision is private, that's really quite a challenge. And uh, the Indian malaria program is only beginning to confront how to overcome that particular challenge. You say a lot of really interesting things about the importance of the private sector. Um, can you say more about, clearly the, they've had an important role in philanthropy, but, and you're talking now about the role they play in health systems. Yes. Is there other roles for the private sector? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think when we talk about the private sector in the case of malaria, we're looking at a number of different categories of support. Um, there is the private sector, often informal, often small-scale, as a provider of health care in the developing countries, how to bring them into the enterprise. Um, on a grand international scale, there is the private sector as the engine for new drugs and new vaccines and uh, discoveries of new uh, tools and technologies. Uh, Sumitomo Chemical, the major Japanese company, brought us the impregnated insecticide impregnated bed net. That was their technology, now copied by others. But that was a major private sector company that brought us that. Often there's collaboration between publicly funded labs, such as at Australian universities, and private companies, because after the basic discovery phase, they're bringing it through to actual uh, development of the product and licensing of the product is a thing which typically the big private companies do better and are geared up to do. So that's an important private sector role. 
Another one which has emerged recently in places like Papua New Guinea is that major private organizations and corporations whose business is not health or malaria, such as the mining and extractive industries in Papua New Guinea, have in some places adopted malaria as uh, a social responsibility and a cause uh, with some self-interest, which is good because the self-interest helps the motivation and helps the investment to continue. So a mining company may say, in the you know, 10 mile radius around my mine or in the 50 mile radius around my mine, there's far too much malaria. It's affecting my workforce, it's affecting the families of my workforce, and it's affecting all those men and women and children who work in those communities which my successful mining operation um, has uh, a special relationship with and uh, some many joint interests. So why don't we, the company, expand the medical services, which we probably have, to embrace malaria control and malaria prevention? And a number of companies uh, are doing that in, in Africa and in Papua New Guinea and other parts of the world. And I think that's a model that we can see more of, particularly in countries like Papua New Guinea where the government has struggled to reach remote areas and to provide malaria prevention services to isolated and remote populations. And mines for some reason, are often in isolated and remote places. Mm, that's fantastic. Thanks very much. Okay. We, we probably need to go, so we should probably wrap up. You can ask a few more. I, I can, I just thought about it, I can go, stay until quarter two, and then I'll Okay. Okay, keep going. It's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, I think the perspective that you're putting on the role of the private sector is really very important because public health often turns its nose up at the private yes. sector and I think having a much broader uh, viewpoint about possibilities and plans is, is a really important one and I notice it's also one of the priorities of the um, group that you lead. Can you say yes. a little bit more about what you're doing there? Yes, well it's, it's a very interesting piece of colonial history I think. Um, 1960 was the year when more countries became independent and shook off colonialism than any other year, but broadly speaking between Indian independence in 1947 and about 1970, over a hundred countries became independent. And at the time of independence, the British National Health Service, the NHS, was sort of the envy of the world. And this was a publicly financed, publicly delivered, free at the point of delivery, healthcare nirvana, which many countries admired and wanted to emulate. And it created a culture across the developing world, particularly in the Anglophone countries, but also well beyond the Anglophone countries, that the model to aspire to, what we should all want to have, is general taxation funding of a public monopoly in healthcare provision. Now, meanwhile, all the other countries in Europe were doing something entirely different. So the Dutch weren't doing that, and the Germans weren't doing that, and the French weren't doing that, but the Brits were doing that. And the developing world, particularly with those early socialist governments, adopted this as the right public policy. Many decades later, uh, we see very clearly that that hasn't worked, uh, that the ability of governments of low-income and lower-middle-income countries to create anything close to a, uh, a publicly owned and delivered healthcare infrastructure that serves most people across a big geography, including marginalized and isolated people, the ability of nearly all developing country governments to do that is very small. 
And what we've seen, therefore, is that the share of publicly provided health care across the developing world has shrunk since independence. And the share that is privately provided, because private providers have just come in to fill the vacuum, has increased. Policymakers in the developing world are waking up to that. They're saying, look, we, we have 40% public provision and 60% private provision, but we're not recognizing that in our discussions in the Ministry of Health or in the Ministry of Finance. We need to realize where we are and plan our health policy from a realistic assessment of where we are. That private sector provision, almost everywhere, is unregulated, despite legislation that may be on the books, it's not enforced, and it's sort of anarchic. It's private providers doing whatever they want to do and filling the gap. And in a country like India, which has the, the largest manifestation of this, that private provision can range from the best in the world, you know, equal to the best hospital in Sydney or Brisbane or Canberra, to the worst in the world and everything in between, because it is unregulated and it's a free-for-all. So there is a wave around the world of governments and advisors to governments saying, let's look at where we are. Let's look at this private sector, to which most of our citizens are going, most often when they get ill, understand it. And don't let's try and close it down, because that's an impossible task. Let's reach out and have a discussion about how private provision can assist public policy goals. And that's the key formulation. We have our public policy goals. The government has failed to meet those public policy goals with government-owned clinics and hospitals. There's a lot of private sector out there. Some of it's good quality. Others, parts of it, could have improved quality. We could have accreditation schemes. We could have public-private partnerships. We could have networks of providers come together in what are called healthcare franchises, which is rapidly increasing around the world. And that would be good for our citizens and would help us, the government, to achieve a goal that through public provision we haven't managed to achieve. Now, the great position for Australia uh, in this debate is twofold. Firstly, Australia is not the United Kingdom. Australia has a plural economy in healthcare provision. Australia has private provision and has public provision, and it's worked pretty well. Australians like to argue about it, and it's a political hot potato, but that's true of healthcare in every country. Viewed internationally, Australia is up there in the top five or six countries in the world. It's up there with the Germans and the Dutch and other countries, which are the Swedes, other countries which are regarded internationally as running a pretty good healthcare system for their people. And that system in Australia is public and private. So Australia, in talking about health sector aid to Papua New Guinea or to Vietnam or to whatever the country may be, is in a rather good starting point to say, well, we don't espouse a public monopoly. We don't have a public monopoly. We're not like the UK in our ideological positions on that subject. So let's talk to you about how we can help you advancing a mixed economy in healthcare. Philippines is another great example, moving rapidly to make a mixed economy in healthcare work and to make private providers have a connection with the National Social Health Insurance Program, PhilHealth, not just the public providers. And that's moving rapidly in the Philippines. There are challenges, but generally going pretty well. And Australia is in a good position to assist that kind of evolution. So my prediction would be in the next 10 years, there will be a real tipping point of interest in private sector healthcare provision. And private sector means everything that isn't government. Can be churches, can be NGOs, can be for-profit, and can be not-for-profit.
And there isn't fundamentally much difference between those things. Some people like to say for-profit healthcare provision, wicked, evil, and bad. It's just not true. It's a very naive view. I once, I once visited a wonderful Catholic hospital, a large Catholic hospital in an African country, and spoke to the, I think she was Belgian, sister in her uh, nun's uh, robe, um, who ran the hospital. She was a very tough CEO of the hospital. And I was talking to her about the finances of the hospital, and she said to me, no margin, no mission. Unless I make a margin, unless I earn some extra cash from the services that I sell to the people of this country, from my religious uh, commitment, I can't keep the show on the road. I need the margin to achieve the mission. That doesn't sound too unlike uh, a for-profit healthcare network. So um, I don't think we should make a lot of distinctions between whether you're a Catholic hospital or whether you're an NGO or whether you're not-for-profit or whether you're for-profit. If you're good at delivering healthcare, running clinics, running hospitals, we, the government, should be interested in talking to you about how to join forces to bring services to poor and marginalized people. The middle class in the cities will always look after themselves. That's not the focus. The focus is the poor, the remote, the marginalized. Great. I'd like to finish just by asking you to reflect back on your own career, if you wouldn't mind. So you've moved in and out of the academy and various bodies that do things. And I just wonder how the research and that practice experience that you've got, how they influence each other and what lessons you might um, convey for other people who are starting out on their careers as to how they might have the most impact. Well, you know, I've been very fortunate and privileged... And, uh, sorry again. So I've been very fortunate and privileged to spend my career in and out of academia. And, uh, you know, I love academia. I love the research enterprise and the teaching enterprise. And that's been an important part of my career. But also, while in academia, I've had quite strong links with people who are developing policy and people who are implementing on the ground. And I've also spent parts of my career uh, on, on the policy and implementation and financing side of global health, particularly with the World Bank and the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. And I think I have certainly gained a lot from that uh, because academia, of course, can become a little ivory tower. It can become a little isolated. It can become a little divorced from the frontline reality or the global politics of policy setting and strategy. And to combine those two and to have a foot in both camps um, is, I think, incredibly valuable. Um, and I would, so for young researchers embarking on, a, on an academic career, I would, shall I go back? That's okay. It's okay. For young researchers embarking on an academic career, of course, they must follow their enthusiasms and their, um, their particular interests. Um, but if this kind of dual foot in both camps career of some work on the research side and some work on the more applied frontline policy or international side through the World Bank or WHO or organizations like that, I would certainly encourage it. And I think it certainly helps the research because every time the research paper is published, the question is, so what? How many people are going to read this? Answer, maybe zero. Um, and if lots of people do read it, which we hope, 
how will it actually change the world? How will that information, that insight, that finding be taken up and translated into new and better action? Um, and that should be a concern of all researchers, and I think researchers can tailor their research better to have real impact um, if they have experience of the non-research world, of the world of policy setting and action. Terrific. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.